Hello, everyone. Welcome back to No Country for Academics. I'm Ben from Not So Sunny Anymore, Melbourne. And I'm Marcel, now at sunny Perth, and we're here with Dr. Julian Garcia, who is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of IT. He's working at the Department of Artificial Intelligence and Data Science, and he's also the director of the Computer Science course, um, which is the one I take here at Monash. Welcome, Julian. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm very happy to be here. A um, bit of a special time, I guess, for everybody, but um, it, it's nice to still feel that we have a community out there and that we can still engage with um, students and, and everyone at Monash. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. Hopefully we can get to do a bit of that. Um, let our student audience um, learn a bit more about your research. So let's get straight into it. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your area of research and, and game theory. What What is it? Right. So um, I'm interested in cooperation and most of the tools that I used are from, from a specific field that is known as game theory. So game theory studies strategic interactions. And that's just a fancy way to call setups or situations in which what you do does not only depend, is not only affected by your own actions, but is also affected by other people's actions. Um, so this may be a little bit deeper than it first appears to be. Um, if you think about predicting the weather, your prediction of the weather does not affect the weather itself. But if we're thinking about agents that are interacting, what you think others will do will definitely impact your choices as well. And so this is what we call strategic interaction. And when you formalize that, then you get this mathematical object that you call a game. And there's a bunch of tools around it to try to make predictions about what rational agents will do, um, study how people learn in this kind of uh, setups and, and things along those lines. Uh, I am particularly interested in cooperation. So roughly speaking, cooperation means that you pay a cost to help somebody else, right? And so um, in a way, what you do is you have some individual incentives and you're interested in producing out of those individual incentives a collective outcome, right? And that's generally what most of the problems uh, revolve around. So, so you're interested in kind of modeling groups of, of agents, as you call them. Um, in, in a general sense, what are some real life applications where this could make a real difference? Because this is not just about games like chess or video games, right? There's real life applications there. Yeah, that's right. So, so um, game theory has been used and is used all the time um, across many domains. So if you think about um, whenever you have interactions between agents and, and you want to produce a desirable outcome, then there's potential to, to apply this, uh, this, um, this kind of broad field of study. Um, one example I really like is auctions, right? So if you think about auctions, um, what you have is a number of bidders that are kind of making bids to, um, in the hopes of securing a product or something like that, right? And so um, you can think somehow deeply about um, how to set up those auctions, for example, to um, have outcomes that are guaranteed to have certain properties, right? So auctions like these are running literally all the time. If you think about um, all those ads that you see when you go to Google, and search for something, and then suddenly you see a bunch of ads. Uh, there's a bidding process behind it that, that runs online uh, between advertisers uh, and Google to kind of auction the space for, for advertisement. Um, this idea of um, 
uh, game theory is also used uh, to study just strategic incentives, right? So there's many uh, real life situations that can be characterized as a social dilemma. So that's a situation where um, your the individual incentives are misaligned with uh, the group outcomes. And then you can use the, the mathematics and the models around this field to study how to um, align those interests. Right? So if we want to kind of give um, one example that is very close to everybody, uh, think about social distancing, right? So it's something that we're all doing um, and we expect that everyone is doing it. But it's a little bit of a social dilemma because um, I have I pay a cost, right, which is staying at home and not having fun outside uh, to produce a benefit that is collective to so that everyone stays healthy. But um, as you see that that uh, these measures starts to kind of um, you know be useful, and you see infection rates that are reducing and so on, you could argue that there's an increased incentive for individual agents to have at least the temptation to go out, right? In the hopes that everyone else will also go out, stay at home. Right. But but then of course, if everyone is thinking along the same lines, then you really um, are in a situation that can be troublesome from the incentives perspective. Yeah. Wow. So it seems like the, the goals are pretty broad, but as you said, with the, um, with the auctions, some of these problems also seem to have been around for, for a long, long time. Um, and what I'm wondering is, why is it that we see such a boom in talking about things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and that kind of stuff nowadays? Um, if these problems have been around for so long, and it seems that the, the math have as well. Is it a lot of theoretical concepts, a lot of new people coming up, um, or is, is there something else? So I think in the, in the particular case of game theory, I mean, you're right, I think uh, most of the central ideas to the field have been there for a while. Um, but I think what we also need to consider is that we increasingly live in a world that is interconnected. Right. And so I think at the beginning of game theory, it was mostly people that were doing behavioral science that were interested in it. Right. Um, but, you know, if you think about something like uh, autonomous vehicles, those are machines that will be learning in a strategic environment and their rewards and their their learning environment is also kind of mediated by other vehicles out there that, that are in the same situation. And so you have. Uh, a lot of these strategic interactions, and I think that that um, that leads to an expansion of the the kind of applications that you may have. And so I think in, in terms of research, then you know what you have is these very core, very central ideas that are indeed um, old, uh, but they they take certain shapes and they're applied to particular problems. Right. So how did you come to learn about these ideas? How did you become interested um, in it? from, for example, the perspective of an undergrad that might be um, learning about game theory for the first time now? Yeah, so um, I started um, at some point, I think, when I was doing my undergrad. So I was born and raised in Colombia, and I did my undergrad uh, in Colombia. Uh, and I was in university, so I was doing um, computer science. But I also had kind of broad interests, and I was very interested in social science as well. Um, so I started... Um, taking some elective units in, in economics. And uh, and then I kind of learned about this, this idea of game theory. And then, you know, one thing led to another. 
um, there were books that were important back then that sort of um, um, really um, made me realize that there was all these nice, um, um, that there were all these nice questions in, in this, uh, at the intersection between social systems and computation, right? And so I think um, at the time, I guess, I, I decided to do my honors thesis um, in a similar topic. Um, and, and then one thing led to another. And, and so, yeah, here I am still studying very similar questions to the ones I had then. So let's, let's get into these questions. So it's called the prisoner's dilemma. So this is one of the fundamental problems, I think, in game theory. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And hopefully we'll go on to, to build to your current research from there. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so the prisoner's dilemma, um, it's a very simple game, but the implications that it, that it has uh, are very deep, I think. Uh, so let's, let's think about the, the structure of the game. So let's say Marcel and Ben come together um, and they have the option to help each other, right? That sounds like something you guys have been through. Uh, and let's say that helping means uh, paying a cost in order to help somebody else, right? So you, we can imagine that um, uh, helping means that Marcel pays a cost of $1 in order to provide a $3 benefit, okay? <laughs> and so you come um, and you both face this situation, right? So you can help each other or you cannot help. Okay, so remember, um, I pay $1, that's the cost of helping, to provide a $3 benefit to the other person. And if I decide not to help, then I get nothing. So my, so my options are, uh, I help or I don't help. So let's suppose that you both help each other, right? So that's nice. Then each one of you is going to uh, pay a cost, minus one, and provide a benefit to the other of, of three dollars or chocolate bars or whatever you want. So that basically means that if you both help, you get two dollars each. Right. However, if if I help um, um, and you don't help me, then I pay the cost minus one and you get three for free. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, and if we don't help, then we all go home empty handed. Right. So if you think about this structure, yeah, what's kind of the thing, what's kind of the thing that you should do? Oh, so, yeah. I mean, looking at it like that, you could argue that um, for your own personal benefit, the best thing would just be to not help at all. Because the worst case scenario is you go home with nothing. But the best case scenario is you go home with an extra $3. Whereas if you were to help, then best case scenario is you go home with two more dollars. Um, or worst case scenario is you go home with nothing. Uh, sorry, with minus one. So surely just analyzing it just from the fact value it's a better idea to just never help and then no matter what you're never losing but you always have the chance exactly yeah so, so if we think about it let's think about it from ourselves perspective right so if ben helps um it's better not to help and get three for free right you just get three dollars uh if ben doesn't help it's better not to help because then you um you know you have zero which is better than minus one so no matter what marcel does um for Ben, it's always better not to help. Now, from the um, from Ben's perspective, it's exactly the same, and so and so Ben will choose also not to help, and the outcome is that you both go home empty-handed. Um, so far, so good, right? But I think the reason we call this a dilemma is that there's an outcome that is better for everyone, and that outcome is helping each other, because instead of nothing, you would go, you would uh, get two each. 
And what that means is that here we have individual incentives, right? Because when you were thinking about this problem, you were only thinking about your own benefit. Um, so those individual incentives are not aligned with the benefit of the group, which is, you know, everyone will be better off if, if everyone would be helping each other. So that's the prisoner's dilemma. And there's a few stories, there's a few different stories about how, um, you know, how to kind of motivate uh, the, the structure, right? So, so it takes its name, the prisoner's dilemma, because uh, I think the most famous story is that of uh, two prisoners that, that are track, kind of giving evidence, and then it's about the number of years that they, that they will spend in jail. Right. Um, but, it's, but it's basically the same structure, right? And so I think that's also nice to see that this idea of the kind of the story of the prisoner um, is actually also about helping. And so it's a lot more general than yeah. um, we at first may think it is. But um, um, in, yep. in kind of a general society, though, this kind of keeps repeating itself, right? And so this is where this gets a bit more complicated because the, this yeah. kind of dilemma will happen over and over. And so you have to have some kind of way to account for this. So, so how do you deal with that? Yeah, so this is this is this this version of the game is is called the one shot version of the game, right? So and so um, you know it's just one shot, that's it. But if you think about it in real life, many interactions are repeated. So what that means is, you know, you can you can imagine that we're kind of facing this helping situation over and over. And so in that sense, I think what we call the strategies of the game that are a little bit different. So previously. I was choosing between helping and not helping. But if we think about the repeated game, it's going to be, um, I have to kind of decide whether I help you or not. And the information that I have on hand to, to make that decision um, is not just the structure of the game that I know, but it's also the history, our, our common history, right? And so I may say one strategy could be, you know, I start being nice and I help. And then if we meet again tomorrow, um, I'm going to help if you help me yesterday, right? So right. you can imagine that this, the strategies, they now take the histories of the game into account. Right. Um, and so what that means is the game is, is more complex because there's uh, uh, many more strategies, actually infinitely many strategies. Um, but the good thing is that under certain conditions, um, this, this threat of not being helped the next day can actually make operation work. And so um, what's key to understand how the structure changes is, so let's say that you play the prisoner's dilemma from Monday to Friday, okay? And yep. you know that it, will, that it goes from Monday to Friday. Then what should you do on Friday? I guess it so let's depends start, on start thinking about it backwards. I mean, if, well, like, if Friday is the last day to do it, then um, considering there won't be... That'll be the last sort of insight help at all. You don't have the risk of people not helping you any further because that'll be the last day you did it. Exactly. Great. So you, that's exactly the, the, thing, the sort of game theoretical thinking, right? So that, that happens on Friday. Okay, so now you've decided that on Friday you're not going to help. Uh, now, knowing that, what should you do on Thursday? If you're not going to help on Friday? Yes. Um... Well, and remember, your opponent is just as smart as you are, right? So they'll know that you're not going to help them the next day. So the reputation, in a sense, which is, I guess, what we can call 
what we've done in the past doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. So, so the thing is, okay, I'm going to defect on Friday because Ben's right. I mean, there's no, there's no future consequence for me, right? There's no way you can punish me because that's the end of the world on Friday. So I'm going to defect. You're also smart, so you're also going to defect uh, on Friday. So kind of Friday is kind of out of the way, right? Um, what about Thursday? Well, I guess since Friday, if you're if neither no like neither of you are expecting to help, all of a sudden Thursday becomes the last day, and then the same thing arises that you would expect exactly. not to help on Thursday. Exactly, exactly. And so and so, what you conclude is that if the horizon of the game, so to say, is is finite and known, uh, then everyone should defect, and and that's the only sort of rational outcome, if you like, of this repeated game. Um, which is kind of bad news, right? But the good news is that we can kind of solve that if we um, assume that instead of knowing exactly when the game ends, instead of knowing, okay, we're going to play Monday to Friday, every time we meet, we flip a coin and then decide whether we play once more or not. And so that that kind of probabilistic horizon uh, changes the structure in such a way that, you know, um, depending on the payoffs and the probability that the game continues, uh, the threat of the possible punishment I may get tomorrow is enough to entice me to cooperate now. Uh, that, seems uh, to be, so, yep. that seems to be more or less what happens in real life as well, right? We don't really know when you know we're going to die, for example, right? So um, we can't say, okay, from this day on, that's it. Exactly. But it has deep implications, right? Because I think then then it becomes uh, a matter also of like who you're interacting with. And so if it's your flatmate or, or your neighbor, it's a completely different scenario than, than when you're interacting, you know, as a tourist with somebody that you will not be likely to meet again ever. Right. Um, and so I think the re well, what that means is that basically. Please. Uh, cooperation but repetition it will apply in certain scenarios and those scenarios are such that uh, you know there's kind of a, a uncertain horizon and the, the agents are meeting um, each other all the time yeah right okay so, so that's so that's what we call direct reciprocity but it's not it's not you know if you think about this then uh, what's going on is that i i am relying on my own information to make my choices. And my own information is basically the history that I have with you. Okay. Um, yeah. Now this requires, you know, it, it may work maybe in, in, in groups that are small so that I can keep track of everybody. But um, you may also rely on social information. And so, and so for example, um, you know, let's say that I'm meeting Ben uh, for the first time and we have this situation of, you know, helping each other or not. And I actually haven't played with Ben ever. But Ben has a reputation, and I know from Marcel that Ben is quite a nice guy. And so that reputational information can actually have an effect on, on, my, uh, um, on my decision. And, and you can actually show mathematically that this idea of reputation, and that means the information that I have is actually social, right? So I learn from somebody else that, that Ben is a good guy, and therefore I'm more likely to cooperate with him. Um, so that so that's this idea of indirect reciprocity versus direct reciprocity, which is when I'm using my own information. Right. How how do we how do we model that? So I seem to notice that there's there's two ways of modeling. One is kind of having a central system, which is saying okay, yeah. 
well, somewhere at the top is going to tell me all these reputations. That seems pretty simple. Um, and then there's kind of a bottom-up approach. And can you explain maybe the difference between that and why one works different to the other? Yeah, that's right. So that, that relates to one of my uh, one of my papers that I actually wrote with a former honor student. Um, and, and so we were actually thinking about reputation, right? So reputation has this very intuitive appeal. Um, uh, you know, um, if you there's all these uh, car sharing apps, right? So you can call a, a, a car, and and I don't know if you guys know, but everyone has a reputation there and you can kind of find out your reputation right uh, right because because everyone is kind of rating each other after a reason yeah. of this group outcomes in a setup where otherwise uh, it may be a little bit tricky because the people that are interacting are always anonymous and so you in a way you you don't know what to expect yeah. um, so 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 this idea of reputation can be formalized and, and when you do that what you realize is that the key element um, to to find if cooperation actually works or not is the way in which the reputations are assigned. And so because this is mathematics, we actually think about a very simple system where reputations are binary. So a reputation zero, you can think about it good or bad. Um, and so the key element to make cooperation work is is the way in which those reputations are updated. What does that mean? That means that uh, if I am observing an interaction between Ben and Marcel, um, I can uh, see what happens and I can consider, you know, your your actions, but also the reputation of the other. And then I can say, OK, well, Ben is a good guy and Marcel is also a good guy. Right. So that's this reputation update. Um, yeah. So this mechanism of reputation update is what makes um cooperation tick when you have this reputation um, uh, mechanism in place. Um, now, there's really interesting questions there, even even almost like philosophical. So, for example, if if I see um, someone being nasty to a bad guy, are they a good guy or are they a bad guy? Right. Right. And so if you because you have these 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 binary reputations, then the 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 uh, the ways in which you can update the reputations of others, you can actually enumerate them and then you can study them. Now, when you set the norm, so we know that certain norms are, are really good in promoting cooperation. Um, um, so. For example, the rule that says that um, you should reward um, good guys that are good to other good guys, but you should also kind of reward guys that are nasty to someone that is bad, right? So so that rule um, is very good at promoting cooperation. So what we did in this study is, and that's kind of the way that traditionally this system had been looked at, but that kind of didn't really um, align very well with reputational systems in the wild where we know that sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Right. And so what we what what we did is we decided to uh, come up with a mathematical model um, where the agents were choosing not only their actions but also how they assign reputations to others. And then what you find is that um, cooperation is a lot less stable uh, than it is, you know, from the top down, if you like. Okay. Um, and so this has this uh, this has implication when 
designing things like multi-agent systems because then you know that only if you have the power to actually centralize the reputation assignments, then you can have stable cooperation. Otherwise, it's a little bit more tricky. So in, in real life systems, and you've looked at a broad range of things, but one that picked my curiosity was insects and social insects. Um, what, what happens there? Is there a central system in, in the ones you've looked at? And if not, how do they deal with it if it's so unstable? Yeah, so I guess um, what's what's important here is that this idea of um, of um, individual actions and collective outcome is actually is actually very general, right? So uh, um, this is part of a project that uh, was funded by the Australian Research Council, and we're actually working together with some biologists um, who are interested in um, social insect colonies. And so uh, social insects, you know, bees and ants, they have kind of a complex social organization. Um, you know, there's usually like in bees, there's like a queen and there's some workers. But then what's what's interesting is that um, these big groups, they can kind of maintain, you could call it a society, right, where different individuals are kind of specialized in different things. Um, and so. Uh, you know, and, and this is important, right? Like bees in particular are super useful. So um, they pollinate and because they pollinate, I think pollination is estimated to be worth about 20 billion American dollars per year. Wow. Uh, so pollination is needed for plants to reproduce. And so many plants depend on bees and other insects as pollinators. Um, and the, the flowers that are visited more often by bees, they will produce uh, larger and more you know, beautiful fruit than than those that are visited left. Uh, so, so basically, what this means is that this is an important part of the of the food chain, if you like. And so, right. unfortunately, what's been happening is that in the last um, you know uh, 40 years or so, uh, honeybee colonies they have declined a lot. So I think some estimates they said declined by about 50 percent. And what some biologists hypothesized is that this has to do with changes in the environment and the effect that that has on colony behavior. Uh, so it's kind of the interplay between the behavior of the colony and environmental change. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to, to kind of bring this uh, tool set of game theory to study these systems. Um, so this is a very complex system and it can be studied experimentally or empirically, um, but also theoretically, right? And so experiments are actually difficult because you have to track thousands of individuals uh, and kind of look at things in isolation. So, so that's that's actually very hard to pull off, and therefore theory is actually very useful. So we were helping with uh, um, theoretical models of this colony organization and how that will uh, emerge uh, from behaviors that are also linked to what's going on in the environment. Um, and so the way we did that is we we thought, okay, so this is kind of a modeling exercise, right? So so a model. Uh, a model is cut. Uh, so maps are actually wrong. Like they're, they're not an accurate representation of reality, but they're very right. useful because they, ab they abstract things out to allow you to specifically look at the things that you are discussing, right? To kind of isolate the things that matter, right? So, so they're kind of useful thinking tools. And so in the abstract, what we thought is these, these colonies are actually um, groups of agents that are doing two tasks at the same time. And so two prototypical tasks are um, um, foraging and regulation. That's kind of the, the biologist term. The way I think about it is uh, regulation is kind of keep keeping the fridge running, if you like. 
and right. foraging is actually finding food to put in the fridge. And so <laughs> the structure that this has is you need to do the two things at the same time, right? But how do agents learn to to actually perform these tasks? And there, what we find is there's actually different modes of social organization that depend on the environment. So for example, um, um, there's, there's one mode in which every individual is a generalist. So what that means is every single individual is actually doing the two tasks, but there's also right. a mode where individuals specialize. And so some guys will be only working on the fridge and some other guys will be going out for foraging. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that the specialization mode that sort of emerges from the interactions uh, depends heavily um, on the environment. And unfortunately, there are certain situations that are uh, um, uh, irreversible. So if I start to change, let's say if I start to change uh, the abundance of food in the environment, uh, I may switch from uh, a colony of generalists into a colony of specialists, and some of those transitions are actually not reversible. So even if I bring back the environment, the environment that I had before, the colony will not be able to learn the behaviors that they had before. And and this is very abstract and, and very theoretical, but we think is useful in actually coming up with hypotheses um, around the things that we observe in, in real colonies in the in the real world. So so what might be happening here is that um, real colonies are seeing changes in their environment, um, as you said, in food, and then they're becoming more specialized. Um, and does that make them more productive or, or, or in a simple term, better colonies? Um, or, yeah, or, so, so this will, yeah, so this is also interesting because I think the other thing that we realized with this uh, exercise is that uh, it all depends on the game, right? And so I think, especially as engineers, we, we always have this idea that specialization is always good. Right. Uh, but what we did is we were we were um, looking at the social welfare of the colony. So that's just kind of looking at the average payoff uh, of everybody, so to say. And that's kind of a measure of how well the colony is doing. And what we found surprisingly is that uh, sometimes uh, generalist colonies are actually better off than specialists. And this will depend, you know in sort of a complex way on specific uh, parameters that we include in this game um, or in specific, you know, numbers that we that we use as a representation of the environment. Oh, so that seems like a exactly as you said right at the beginning where you, where you told us about how these models that have been around for a long time are finding um, a variety of different applications. I, I wonder if you're also finding applications in, in human um, behavior. Is there anything we can learn about how we design this specialization and um, learning and punishment, for example. Yeah, so um, there's again coming back to this this kind of this this um, this framework of individual actions uh, uh, and collective outcomes. Uh, so I've actually worked also with some economists, including some at Monash. Uh, applying this to kind of, you know, social systems that that, 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 that that we see all the time. And so one of those systems actually very familiar uh, to to you guys, I believe. So what's the name of this show? No Country for Academics. Exactly. So academics, it turns out, <laughs> they also have individual incentives and they are also trying to produce a collective outcome. Because if we think about science, 
science is uh, um, for the good of everybody, right? So it's kind of a collective exercise. But as it turns out, we have individual incentives to perform to do certain things, right? And so and so I have a project that is looking into um, these social dilemmas that happen in in the academic environment, right? And so you you might think, for example, if you think about the process of publishing papers, uh, then you can kind of carefully and formally think about what are the incentives for a single academic uh, to produce a paper, right? So you have a paper, it has a certain quality, and what's what's um, what does your benefit depend on? Does it depend on the prestige of the journal in which the paper is published? Or does it depend on how useful the idea or how novel the idea is? So you can make different assumptions about what individual scientists care about. Uh, but when you study them together, then sometimes you get things that are not very good, right? And so I think in science, there are, uh, there are things that are a little strange, right? So for example, the fact that credit it's mostly it's kind of disproportionately given to the first person that comes up with an idea right, right? So the first so that you know in certain labs i think in, in biotechnology biology like the first lab that came up with the idea kind of gets all the credit why is that and what are the implications of that um so that's just one example where where you can kind of apply this way of thinking uh, and so this is part of a project that is also being uh, funded by the Australian Research Council. And, and it's it's in its early stages, but we're trying to um, also apply these ideas to to social systems, if you like. So um, sorry, so, just regarding that, you were saying um, so often the lab that comes up with the idea is given more credit than maybe like the lab that's behind most of the research into the idea is sort of what you're implying. Not necessarily, not necessarily, but let's say um, there's there's kind of uh, I think for many ideas in science, if if you are the first person to put it out there, you know, then the the incentive for someone else to work on that idea is a lot less than when no one has put up the idea first, right? And so sometimes I think this may have implications because maybe labs or individual scientists may rush to publish things, you know, because because it's kind of a race, right? And I think it's worth thinking about what are the implications of that kind of behavior for um, the quality of science, for example, um, and, and how can we use the understanding of those incentives in order to design, um, you know, potentially better scientific institutions, right? Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I think that's that's just one example of how uh, these idea of, you know, individual incentives and collective outcomes can be really applied uh, across many fields. Um, yeah, so we, you know, so we study AI systems, social systems, you know, uh, models in biology, but also in social science. So, so I think it's, it's a very, um, um, yeah, there's tons of applications for, for this kind of thinking. Yeah. Great. Um, so we've, we've coming, well, we've blown past the, the half hour that this interview is meant to last, but I want to finish up by, by asking you, what would you tell um, a student who's interested in this academic field, um, who's studying at Monash now, what would you tell them to, to get involved? How, how can they do that? How can they go about becoming a, a lecturer or a researcher? Mm -hmm. So I think in academic, I think what's vital is to have some curiosity, right? I think we're driven mostly by, by curiosity and we want to solve things and kind of help the world. Um, in terms of advice, 
um, I think it's important to uh, get a sense for what you like. I think most of us are working on things that we enjoy. Um, and so that's important. And, and to get involved with research, I think uh, the best way to do it is just try to, you know, read some literature. Um, depending on the field, you may be able to try to replicate or try to think about those ideas and then just reach out to, to academics. I think many, many academics are very happy to um, um, you know, engage. Um, and so, and so I think that's, 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 that's an important thing. Uh, so yeah, we, we often get uh, lots of uh, requests, you know, for like, you know, um, and maybe if you have like a summer project or a winter project. And so I think in, in light of, of those many requests, what you want to do is you want to kind of stand out. And the way you do that is, you know, so it's very different when I get an email that says, Hey, you know, uh, your stuff is kind of cool. Um, do you have internships? Uh, versus an email that says, hey, you know, I read this paper that you wrote and I find it really interesting and I think you could extend it in this way and that way, right? So that's a very different kind of email. Right. Uh, and so I think uh, the, the point here is, I guess, just to try to engage um, a little bit deeper and, and just reach out. And I think most most scientists would, would be happy to engage and that's often our way into you know this this kind of activity yeah that's that's definitely something we've we've seen as we've been reaching out to a lot of people um to come on the show um is that both scientists are, are very welcoming and, and very engaged um and wanting to engage with students so if you are a student out there and want to get involved um read up get interested and, and then contact um people at monash and, and they'll be mostly very happy to help um ben uh, we're coming up to the end so do you have any more questions um, no, not particularly. I think, um, Julian, you really, really well explained a lot of that. I was expecting coming into this because I didn't have a lot of knowledge on the topic that I would have a lot of questions, but you actually really succeeded in explaining it to me. So I only really had that, <laughs> that one or two that I asked, but, um, I just, I just also wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it was really great chatting with you about all your research and everything you've gone through. No, thank you guys. I think this is great. I, I miss this kind of thing, you know, it happens all the time in university. We're, we're trying to replicate most of it online, but, uh, you know, it's great to see that this is still going on and, and, and uh, you know, great initiative to have this show. I look forward to also listen myself to, to other episodes as well. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, we're going to have to run to a quick break. So thanks again, Julian, for coming to the show. And we're going to go for a quick break with some music. So uh, feel free to tune in. Uh, we should be back in about five minutes. Thank you, everyone. I've never Thank seen a diamond choose. in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. And I'm not proud of my address. In a torn up town, no postcode envy. But every song's like gold teeth, gray goose dripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room. We don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams. But everybody's like crystal, Maybach, diamonds on your timepiece, jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash. We don't care. We aren't caught up in your love affair, and we'll never be wrong. It's a one in our blood That kind of love just ain't for us We crave a different kind of buzz Let me be your ruler, ruler. You can call me Queen Bee And baby I'll rule Let me live that fast 
count our dollars on the train to the party And everyone who knows us knows That we're fine with this We didn't come from money But it'll be songs like Gold Teeth, Grey Goose Dripping in the bathroom Bloodstained ball gowns Trash in the hotel room We don't care We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like Crystal Maybach Diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold Affair. And we'll never be royals It's a one in our blood That kind of looks just ain't for us We crave a different kind of buzz Let me be your ruler, ruler. You can call me Queen Bee And baby I'll rule. Let me live that fantasy
Ángel. and welcome back to No Country for Academics. You're here with Ben and Marcel and you were just listening to Hello by the Cat Empire and before that was Royals uh, by Lord. Hello is definitely one of my favorite songs. Um, in the first half of the show, we had Dr. Julian Garcia, who is from Monash and he's in the IT department. We had a great discussion about game theory. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But if you want to read more about his work, you can go to Garcia Julian dot com and there he has um, all of his research listed and his contact details if you want to get in touch with him um, he we um, definitely listened back to the discussion if we didn't get a chance to in the first half because it was um, very illuminating to some of the the challenges of game theory and how it applies in, in many different fields what do you think ben yeah absolutely i thought it was a great discussion and it's a really interesting concept um especially when he was discussing um, the, that idea of sort of like a generalist approach versus specialist approach to like um, society and stuff like that. I thought that was incredibly interesting and just the, the sort of fundamental theories behind that and like how that can apply not only to social insects as uh, Julian discussed, but also to sort of human communities in, as a whole. Definitely. And um, what really struck me at the end was the way he just applied it out of the blue to this um, academic field, right? Um, so, so the problem with the academic field is that there's a reward for whoever comes up first. And when he first said that, I was like, what's wrong with that? You know, um, that's the point. We want people to come up with ideas. But the problem is nobody's there to come after and do more research to make sure that that's right. Um, and actually, this in, in, for example, psychology, where um, a lot of the problems that are being discovered then can't be replicated. And so this is called the replication problem. And that, that's what he was referring to there. I found that his approach of going into it with a game theory perspective and Game theory is not about video games and, and chess. It's kind of a way of, of modeling interaction. Um, that was a really wonderful um, aspect of it from him. Yeah, absolutely. It was a spectacular discussion. I also, I also liked um, a little bit at the beginning how he sort of gave us that comparison between game theory and how it's actually interacting now with um, the social distancing restrictions that we've put ourselves on, that have been put on us. Um, so I think that that's, it's really great to just see just how broad the applications are for this game theory and how it really is like a fundamental concept behind a lot of the interactions that we have to this very day as well as throughout like many many years definitely um one one more thing that he that, that struck with me as well was the way that he referred to um game theory as just a model and um, a model that tells us not exactly what is going on but um a model that is wrong in a way that a map is wrong to some level but it can be helpful right so if you yeah, want to travel was, um, the country that was actually something that really struck me as well, that um, as, yeah, as he said, and um, I don't know if this is common knowledge to a lot of people, but the actual sort of um, 
scale of the map that we see is actually very incorrect. Places like the United States are actually a little bit smaller than they seem, and places like Russia are actually a lot larger than they seem. Right. Um, so I found that really interesting that he compared a model to a map in the fact that it's not it's not a completely accurate and actually can be quite wrong, but it's a good sort of abstract way of approaching exactly. and looking at the idea so that we can get a good basis. Exactly. So even though the, the map of the United States might be a little out of shape, the, the ratio and the proportion is right, and that's what matters. Um, yeah, exactly. That, and that it's actually a helpful model to us, even if it's not perfectly exactly correct. So a lot of brilliant discussion there from, from Julian. Um, uh, in, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll have some... Uh, Similar, um, well, not similar, but related discussions with academics. Uh, Julian touched a little bit on philosophy. Next week, we're going to have Professor Tim Bain, who's a philosopher of mind. So that's going to be really exciting. And we have um, a big lineup of guests coming up in the next weeks as well. Exactly. So uh, please make sure that you do tune in because we've got some really great guests that have some incredibly interesting topics, um, some similar and some not so similar to what we discussed today. But I think that there's a little bit for everyone. So please feel free to come join in. It'll um, lead to some great discussions. Um, but considering we are a little bit on the constraint of time, Marcel, I'd like to just move on to a, a segment that we unfortunately didn't get to indulge in last week of a dumb leadership quote and see what you think of it. All right, let's do it. All right, so now this one um, I've actually come to realize is quite a popular one. I'm not sure if you've heard it before, um, but it has a bit of a follow-up to it. So I'll just start with the initial one. Um, okay. So the quote is, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. That was said live? So that was said. Um, mm -hmm. See if you can guess who. I will give you a hint. It was a US president. Said, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. That's, okay. I see the point. Um, <laughs> I think, I, honestly, my first guess, guess would be um, Bush. So the second Bush. Um, that's, that's a good guess. But it was actually by President Bill Clinton. Wow, okay. That, that's fair enough, Look, As long as it's not somebody that I would not associate with, with Miss Suki. I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting quote, and it actually, it actually came from, um, he was talking about his, um, I believe it was an affair with an individual named Monica Lewinsky, and wow. um, he was talking about it to, and this was actually the entire quote, so I'll finish off, that was just the, the part of the quote. Um, this was in front of a grand jury as well, because I believe it may have been part of his of some sort of hearing that he had. Uh, but the entire quote is, if you'll indulge me, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. If the, if he, if is means is and never has been, that is not, that is one thing. If it means there is none, that was completely true statement. Now, if someone had asked me that day, are you having any sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky? That is, ask me a question in the present tense. I would have said no, and it would have been completely true. <laughs> what a way to get out of it. So I think this must have been during his impeachment hearing. Um, I believe, I which, believe you are correct. Which he did get impeached, but... Uh, I just think it's such a, it's such a funny way of getting, of getting out of, the, yeah. of, sort of, being, of what he was accused of. He was like, I yeah. mean, if you ask me in the present tense, I would have said no. So I guess it just depends on what the meaning of the word is. is. Yeah, but that, that first sentence, um, for a second there, it seemed like somebody challenged him to try and make his case with Three or two letter words. <laughs> yeah, um, especially, yeah, that phrase that was, um, if the, if he, if is means is and ever truly has been, that is not. That almost sounds like something Shakespearean-esque. I was movie. just going to say, yeah. Exactly. So, really... I mean, you, put that, you put that in the middle of a Shakespeare po poem and it's just like, okay, you know, one more thing to think about deeply. 
Yeah, no, I could absolutely imagine a man in garters holding his skull saying to a large crowd of people that exact quote. I think it, it is yeah. almost Shakespearean-esque. Maybe that's what he was almost going for. Enough. Yeah, it was just a deep reference. You know, maybe we're not just, we're just not educated enough to get it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in, in the defense of President Clinton, he, he was a president and no, neither of us have ever been a president. So yeah, there, exactly. there is a definite difference between the way that we think and the way that he thinks. Definitely. So, um, I mean, not ruling it out, you know, maybe one of us will be president someday. But for now, let's just say that um, he, he can get away with that kind of thing, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, judging on the fact that he was impeached, I guess he can't get away with it very well. I guess not. Well, he continued to be president, so... Exactly. Absolutely. Now, um, I would love to continue this discussion, but unfortunately, we are starting to run uh, quite low on time. Uh, so we might just get ready to start wrapping things up. Um, once again, if any of you are interested in any of uh, Julian Garcia's work, uh, please do uh, head to his website, which is GarciaJulian.com. And you can read more on his research, uh, look to contact him and um, sort of follow up anything that might interest you like that. Um, do you have any, anything else to say before we end the show, Marcel? That's it. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to Julian again for, for a great um, interview. Exactly. Yes, thank you again, Julian, and thank you all for listening. We will be back again next week on Friday, uh, starting from 3 p.m., and we have the great philosopher of mind individual, Tim Bain, joining us. So come for along for a great philosophical discussion. Um, so once again, thank you very much, and have a lovely rest of the week. <laughs>